Welcome to Free and Fair with Frenita and Foley. In this podcast, we break down complicated legal issues leading up to the 2020 U.S. presidential election. I'm Frenita Tolson, Vice Dean for Faculty and Academic Affairs here at University of Southern California Gould School of Law. And I'm Ned Foley, the Director of the Election Law Program at The Ohio State University Moritz College of Law. Before we begin, a quick note. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Hey, Frenita, how are you today? Doing great, Ned. How are you? Things are good. It's We've got torrential downpours here in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, but other than that, uh, things are good. Yeah, so. you know, we had a little rain here in California, and I have to admit I was mildly offended because it doesn't <laughs> usually do that here. Um, but uh, I was uh, my, my spirits picked up a little bit when I thought about the guest that we have on our show today. Hi, Derek. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah so. we're really excited about this. We're very happy to welcome Professor Derek Muller, which I love to say rhymes with Duller, <laughs> which is on his Twitter page. I'm not being rude. Um, <laughs> uh, Derek joins us from um, University of Iowa, right? You are uh, making a move. He was originally at Pepperdine, then visiting at, at Notre Dame, and now he is going to Iowa. And so um, making moves, going to a very important battleground state, you know, first in the nation, primary, um, sorry, caucus. Let me be clear about that. Um very clear, right? <laughs> but um, most but, importantly, coming to the Big Ten, Fernita, he's joining oh. the Buckeyes in the Ohio State in the Big Ten. <laughs> so this is where I don't admit I didn't know the name of the team. Um, <laughs> uh, but even more importantly than that, he came to talk to us today about faithless electors. Um, so Derek has played a huge role in sort of thinking through these issues surrounding faithless electors. Uh, he wrote a amicus brief for the Supreme Court um, case, which is uh, which was argued last week. So the cases of uh, Chiafalo versus Washington and Co- Colorado Department of State versus Baca. Um, Derek participated in that litigation. And so um, we thought it would be great to have him on the show today to talk to our listeners about um, what he sees are the dominant legal issues surrounding uh, faithless electors. And what do he think about the part? Party's arguments, because um, of particular note is the fact that his brief is in support of neither party. Um, so clearly there are some differences in how he thinks through the legal issues versus how the case was argued. Um, so so let's start there. Let's uh, talk a little bit about the cases and um, the legal issues and, and let's have a great conversation. Sure. Um, well, these, these cases came out of the 2016 presidential election, where after it was apparent that uh, Donald Trump was the presumptive uh, winner uh, a number of presidential electors started to wonder about uh, alternative paths, right? That when we vote for the president of the United States on uh, the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November, we're actually voting for slates of presidential electors. And we usually don't think about them or their role because they pretty faithfully execute the office to which they've been elected. They uh, show up in late December in states around the country and cast votes for uh, the president and vice president. But um, In 2016, there was great consternation, if you will, (laughs) and a number of electors um, looked at uh, alternative ways of expressing themselves and potentially uh, altering the outcome of the presidential election. So, I mean, we could talk a lot more about those things, but these two cases came out of two different uh, state rules that um, try, or in in 2016 succeeded, uh, unless the Supreme Court says otherwise, in controlling how presidential electors behave. So in Washington state, uh, presidential electors must vote uh, with the winner of the statewide popular vote. Uh, If they fail to do so, they are fined $1,000. And so Chiafalo uh, 
involves three uh, challengers who were each fined $1,000 for casting votes for someone other than Hillary Clinton. Um, in Colorado, in contrast, uh, you are not allowed to vote for uh, the person who did not receive, or who was, uh, for anyone except the person who received the, the most votes statewide. And so Baca was an elector who attempted to vote for John Kasich instead of Hillary Clinton. Uh, when he attempted to do so, he was deemed to have vacated his office and replaced, and uh, he is challenging uh, that statute here. So those two cases are up before the Supreme Court, um, squished into this May telephonic uh, oral argument setting, I think, so the Supreme Court can issue a decision by June and give us a little guidance ahead of the 2020 election. Wow, they're not giving themselves much time because I have to admit, you know, when I read the lower court opinions, I was a, a little torn <laughs> about um, about what the appropriate outcome here. And so one of the things that struck me was this question of, well, to what extent did the 12th Amendment alter Article 2? Um, and we don't give a, enough thought to the 12th Amendment. We sort of take the Electoral College as a whole, which is something that um, Ned has challenged in his recent book, right, arguing that the 12th Amendment, you know, changed some very fundamental things about um, the Electoral College. Uh, so before we launch into the merits, though, I want you to tell our listeners a little bit about your position on these cases, because it's very distinct, right? It's, I'm torn about the outcome, but you're like, look, the court shouldn't even weigh in. Why not? That's why I, I think it, maybe it's because I'm torn in the outcome that I don't think the court should weigh in, right? Um, you know, when when we think about uh, presidential electors and the role they play, they are casting votes, and someone has to count those votes, and it's really Congress that counts those votes. Um, it uh, it's counted them, you know, in Article Two of the original Constitution. It counts them under the Twelfth Amendment, and there's questions that have arisen over two centuries as is going to happen <laughs> when you have all these votes pop up. Um, how do we handle when two different slates of electors give us their votes and tell us uh, they purport to be the elected representatives from that state? Uh, what happens if the electors vote for a candidate who's died? What happens if the electors uh, were chosen before the state had become a state? Uh, how do we handle these kinds of disputes? So um, there have been a number of controversies that have bubbled up over the years. And they're, they're usually not too controversial because um, the outcome is usually foreordained, not always, but uh, it's usually a pretty big margin. And so we're fighting at sort of the, the fringes of the count. You know, does this person win by 98 or win by 101? And so, so it doesn't matter in some respects when Congress is engaged in that, that counting of the votes. But in my view, there's sort of this textually demonstrable commitment in the 12th Amendment that it's left to Congress to decide how to count these votes. And, um, you know, we always rush to the courts <laughs> to resolve these disputes. And maybe part of it is, you know, Bush versus Gore, um, you know, in 2000, a lot of these disputes bubbled up before the electors met, right? A lot of this dealt with recounts in the state of Florida and challenges about whether or not the Republican slate won or it should have been another slate. Um, but, but in my eyes, you know, this is a very different kind of dispute because in 2016, Congress counted the votes, uh, you know, that were presented to them. There were a lot of people that objected to a lot of things that happened in the 2016 election in Congress, but Congress went ahead and counted all of those votes. And so in my view, particularly in Colorado, um, you know, Congress has had a chance to weigh in or Congress, if it hasn't formally expressly weighed in. Uh, is the place where these disputes ought to first arise. And Congress ought to be the one that makes these kinds of decisions. So when Congress decided to count nine votes for Hillary Clinton out of Colorado, 
um, it essentially rejected that Michael Baco was a legitimate elector from the state of Colorado. Didn't make that express finding, didn't make that, uh, you know, was, wasn't faced with a competing certificate from Baca. But in my view, that, that's a pretty strongly persuasive place to resolve these kinds of disputes. And um, so now for someone to show up after the fact and, and ask a court, hey, wait a minute, no, 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 Congress got it wrong, right? Congress uh, picked the wrong person, the state law was inappropriate, you know, t- to me is not the way to go. And while I might struggle with these questions about uh, whether or not laws can bind electors, whether or not you can find electors, you know, in, in my view, Congress is the place to resolve these disputes, not, not the federal courts. It's an important argument, I think. Um, I'll be interested to see if the court really tackles with it since the parties seem to want the court to decide it. (laughs) Although, I mean, at oral argument, I mean, there were multiple justices, Justices Breyer and Gorsuch in particular, who did pick up on this thread about what about Congress, you know, or or why didn't you present your your vote to Congress and things like that. I don't know, maybe we'll see, or maybe part of it is these were some of the same arguments that some of the dissenting justices made in Bush versus Gore, um, and maybe they're, they're coming back again. I don't know. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, it was a great brief that you wrote. It was really well written and really well presented. I wonder if it makes a difference in thinking about this that Baca didn't try to knock on the door of Congress before coming to the court and whether that, because cause if he had gone to Congress and protested and Congress had rejected his position, is that a little bit di- different than him not trying at all and it just coming to the court fresh? Yeah, I point it. So part two of my brief makes this, um, and I don't know how to situate it, so I leave it to the court to decide if it's a ripeness, waiver, or failure to exhaust remedies. <laughs> I say, you know, when we think about the great sort of inner branch struggles, you know, William Marbury goes and asks Thomas Jefferson for his commission first, and then he goes to the courts, right? And um, Adam Clayton Powell goes to Congress and says, will you seat me? And Congress says, no, stand over there. Um, and we're not going to seat you. And in both those cases, you know, I, I, I use them as this principle that, you know, you've got to go there first, <laughs> like go ask Congress and, and, and sharpen that dispute. So it, it might be right. Uh, Congress never got to look at, at Bach as elector because he never presented his certificate to Congress. And, and, you know, it's not clear that um, anyone in Congress would have listened, even if he did, uh, much less engage in a formal debate. Um, so I do wonder about that. But at the same time, then I wonder, you know, well, do you get to sort of get a court to decide because you refuse to go to Congress where that's maybe where you should have gone in the first place if you think that your, your remedy is to get a vote, uh, a vote counted? It does make me wonder, though. Um, perhaps they felt comfortable going to the courts because um, this seems to tie into sort of core questions about representation and constitutional interpretation, you know, just in terms of what the court does. Um, the Tenth Circuit decision in particular in Baca seemed to try to shove it into that box, right? And their discussion about who is an elector, right? Elector means elector, right? We When we think about voters casting their ballot um, at the founding, they were assumed to be people of independent judgment, right? And you see the Tenth Circuit trying to ascribe that to presidential electors, right? That they also have the ability to be independent. And so it, it just, it seems to me that perhaps um, this is a situation in which um, the the 10th Circuit felt comfortable resolving this debate because they could fit it into what they know, right? This is a question of representation. This is a question of constitutional interpretation. This is what courts do. Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, so I think when I think about political question doctrines, um, 
that's probably more persuasive if I think about lack of judicially manageable standards, right? The, the fact that courts are able to handle this dispute. Um, I think the Supreme Court, I mean, we don't have to get in the partisan gerrymandering context quite yet, but in a lot of other cases, <laughs> they felt like, oh yeah, these are things that courts do, or these are things that courts can handle, and we have no problem uh, resolving these disputes. But when it comes to the sort of textually demonstrable commitment, you know, um, I think about Nixon and the Supreme Court deciding we're not going to handle what it means to try an impeachment under the Constitution. Judge Nixon, right? <laughs> yeah, Judge, <laughs> Judge, Judge Nixon, not President Nixon. You know, it's very, I never remember if it's Nixon versus the United States or United States versus Nixon. So I always have to, get, I just refer to it as Nixon in shorthand. Um, I mean, the Supreme Court knew, I mean, the Supreme Court could come up with a definition of try, right? I mean, if there's anything that courts know what to do, it would be, you know, what a trial looks like. But um, they're very strong in sort of saying this is the kind of thing that's sort of left to the Senate to decide, not for us to decide. And that's, you know, in terms of sort of departmentalism, I, I feel a lot more confident in thinking this is something that's really left to Congress. I'm sure if we if um, courts were faced with the competing slates of electors that Hawaii sent to Congress in 1960, uh, a court could sit down and figure out, you know, which ones were the right ones who actually won. And in fact, there was a court, <laughs> a state court, but a court that said, here's who we think won this election. Here's who we think the right electors are. Um, but again, despite the fact that courts can do it, doesn't necessarily mean they should. Um, but you're right, the 10th Circuit did so they could. Do you think, Derek, because of what you just said, it almost makes the Supreme Court's decision irrelevant either way? In other words, uh, you know, I'm thinking about if we do get a dispute in the fall that does go to Congress, can either side that loses in the Supreme Court on this issue about being a faithless elector kind of relitigate the matter in Congress if it actually made a difference? Boy, boy! Now, now I feel like we're inviting extra messiness, Ned. So that's a that's an additional complication, <laughs> right? Because you would have to imagine a situation where, um, you know, either the now, maybe it would be easy for an elector to ignore the, the outcome more so than a state. But imagine this comes down saying electors get to vote for whomever they want, um, and a state tries to continue to enforce their law, which seems like a very difficult thing for the state to do in the face of a Supreme Court decision that says you can't. Um, and then going to Congress and saying, well, wait a minute, no, here's our real slate of electors. Um, well, that I mean, does seem to invite, invite new chaos. That's interesting because I would have thought it, the the asymmetry was in the other direction. Meaning, if if a state legislature like in Colorado or Washington really doesn't like faithless electors, and 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 an elector does try to be faithless in the fall, let's say the Supreme Court's given them the green light to do that, um, and so that's what happens on December fourteenth when the electors meet, and the legislature says we really don't like that. And so then they try to assert their Article Two power to supersede the faithless elector. That's like all these fears that many of us have of a state legislature trying to supersede the popular vote by appointing electors directly. So I could imagine a competition in Congress next January where you've got one submission from the faithless elector with a waiving the Supreme Court opinion saying I have the right to be faithless. But another submission from the legislature saying we really don't want faithless electors in our state and we really want Congress to ignore that faithless elector. Does Congress have the right to choose which slate it wants to or is it bound by the Supreme Court's opinion? 
opinion. I, I think that's a very tricky issue. Yeah. Well, I think it's also tricky. And I think about the precedent side of things, right? On the one hand, um, Congress, I think, is pretty is somewhat opposed to faithless electors, at least as a matter of members of Congress, right? I mean, I don't, I don't know what they think about, you know, uh, first principles, but I think that they would prefer whatever the results come in to be the appropriate results. And in fact, you know, in 1969, there were a number of members of Congress that even in the absence of a state law would have refused to count a vote from a faithless elector in North Carolina. And that, I mean, and there, there was really no case to be made not to count that vote. And yet a number of members of Congress did up against what um, authorizing a state legislature to submit a second slate after election day to cure uh, what they view as a defect from the, from the popular vote um, setting up then a really dangerous precedent of <laughs> authorizing the legislature to come in later on and appoint a slate of electors after the election, which I think is a real, really challenging situation. So I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think Congress is looking at lesser of two evils in cases like that. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it'll, do, do you have a feeling of how the argument went? I know Friedenita was asking earlier what you thought of the advocates, and I'd be curious as to what you thought, both of how it was argued and also if you if you could feel the direction of where the court is heading. I, mean, I thought it was... It, I thought everyone did a very good job at the oral argument. I was impressed with all the parties. Um, clearly, they thought carefully about these issues. And I think um, having bubbled up through the lower courts over the last couple of years, I think, shows that there's been a lot of homework done, a lot of a lot of good work. Um, my sense from the oral argument was that there seemed to be pretty broad consensus among the justices that they didn't uh, want faithless electors. But I think there was also a lot of disputes about how they were gonna get there, <laughs> right? Um, so there were some sort of pragmatic concerns. Judge Kavanaugh overtly referred to the avoid chaos theory of judging, which he, he suggested, you know, the status quo has been that there isn't, aren't these faithless electors that get to do whatever they want, or there have been these state laws that try to bind them and, and control them. Should we suddenly sort of disrupt that? Uh, Justice Kagan sort of operated from a, I don't know, tie goes to the state kind of approach where she felt like the constitution wasn't very strong and text structure history kind of points in different directions. That's the case, just let the states do what they want, decide whether or not they want to bind electors. Uh, and then there was a little bit of a thread from some like Justice Thomas who suggested, you know, maybe the 10th amendment includes this reserved power of states to control uh, the discretion of presidential electors, which can, I, I don't know how many, how much support there is in the court for that philosophy, but um, also in, in that sort of vein of concerns about um, about letting faithless electors kind of do whatever they want. But th that was my sense. My sense was I, there seemed to be broader consensus. It's hard to say how many justices were playing devil's advocate. <laughs> um, there were also a lot of procedural concerns for the case as well, which maybe is a, is a separate uh, issue. But um, it would be interesting to see if this ends up being some kind of plurality opinions uh, that all come around the same result. Uh, or if there's a you know more ideological divides that happen on the court. Yeah, no, uh, that's interesting. I, I I shared the same sense that the the balance of uh, weight on the of the justices was how do we how do we get rid of faithless electors consistent with our oath to uphold the Constitution? Because um, as someone who teaches constitutional law as well as election law. I really want to teach this case to my constitutional law students, not just my election law students. I don't know if you guys had the same uh, feeling or not, but 
I definitely uh, felt probably even more confused after the argument because, <laughs> you know, I know the, the chaos theory of judging, but I, I have to admit, I'm like, yeah, this could lead to some um, unintended consequences in a way that worried me a little bit. Uh, but it also in my mind ra- raised fundamental questions about who do the electors represent exactly, right? Like, you know, to the if this if, if Derek is right, we don't really have to think through this completely right because then Congress can decide. Um, but if the court decides, then I do think we need to have some sense of who the electors are speaking for. Um, because I, I found myself in reading the lower court opinions that that thought kept coming to my mind, because if we're saying that they have independent judgment, right, um, how consistent is that with the idea that they are um, the voice of the people to some extent, right? Because you've had this election and now we have electors and part of the the motivation behind the statute is to bind the electors with popular sentiment, right? That seems to be the core of sort of Republican theory. Um, but on the other hand, if they are independent, then, you know, arguably they can act independent of majoritarian sentiment, but that seems somewhat inconsistent with Republican theory. So I found myself going back and forth, uh, somewhat inconsistent, I say somewhat, because after all, at the founding and for much of the 19th century, electors were thought to have independent judgment, right? And so there is that piece of it, but there does seem to be a tension with the idea of majoritarian principles, right? And whether electors are like these intermediaries who speak on behalf of the people. Um, So, and I don't know what the answer is. I just know that when I was reading it, I was like, there just seems to be this conflict between two um, really dominant theories that underlie our Republican government, right? Majoritarianism and the idea of the independent elector. How do you reconcile that? And maybe the answer is they don't, right? So don't say that, Derek, (laughs) right? You have to argue with me. Don't say that. (laughs) I will will argue. Yeah, I think, think, you know, Professor Bob Bennett's brief in this case was really interesting to me. And it's something I've been thinking about the edges here and there. Because when we show up on election day in early November, you know, we check off a box for Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, and that's it. And in most states, there's no even list of electors. And, you know, 120 years ago, <laughs> you would still get all of the electors listed. And especially when these were printed ballots or party printed ballots, you would vote for these electors individually. You could scratch off the electors you didn't like. I love this story out of California in the late 19th century about uh, the Democratic Party picked a slate of electors, one of whom had killed a United States senator or governor from the state of California. Um, and for some reason, that elector didn't get elected. And so there was one Republican who slipped into the slate because uh, they had picked the wrong elector. But it's because you you can know who the identity of these people are, right? And over time, we kind of recognized, boy, you know, everyone's been voting for sort of a party loyalists in 1796. Why are we just still here listing all their names and identities? And so the ballot form has changed. It changed to you vote for everyone at once with one check of the box. You vote now for just the name of the candidate as a proxy for all of the names behind it. And so there is this weird representation principle, I think, at stake that might just change how we conduct elections otherwise. We would... uh, we would have a ballot where you check off the name Hillary Clinton and so there's 12 people behind it who get to do whatever they want, which seems very odd. Now, maybe the state gets to do that, right? They have to do that because they get to, they get to choose the manner of choosing their election. But there's something strangely deceptive about that. Um, and even in states that don't bind electors, they don't have to. Um, 
you know, we should be maybe rethinking about how the, the process operates, the extent that we're presenting to the public one thing and behind the scenes is actually the second thing that's happening. But here's where I think the text of the Constitution and its purposes don't line up completely. And, you know, Fernita used the term majoritarianism, which, of course, is dear, you know near and dear to my heart, given, you know, I'm a big fan of majority rule and not so-called plurality wins where you, you don't necessarily have a majority. But, but, you know, as I read the history, the, the original Constitution clearly allowed for this independent judgment and, and anticipated it. The 12th Amendment was philosophically adopted on a premise that by now we're going to have party loyalty. So it didn't really want this discretion. On the other hand, it didn't eliminate it either. It didn't actually write a provision in the 12th Amendment to, to eliminate the, the humanness of these human beings. Uh, just like it also kept the provision that lets states choose the manner of appointing uh, electors. And as you know, I wrote in the, in the book that that was the heel, Achilles heel and that it allows for now plurality wins instead of majority wins. So I sort of feel like if the role of the court is to follow the text of the Constitution, it puts you in one direction. If, if you're supposed to sort of do the right thing, regardless of the text, you go in the other direction. And that's where it was interesting to watch a, a Justice Kavanaugh seem to be torn between these two two commitments, because I, I think there is a fork in the road and you have to decide what's a judge supposed to do. And if it's text, it's one fork in the road. If it's if it's making sense of the provision, it's the other. It's the opposite. So I don't know. This is a question for, for both of you that you know, I struggle with when we use that term elector, right? You know, I think, I, I think the plaintiffs in these cases um, have a persuasive argument under the original constitution, especially as an intertextual matter, right? You look at the, the word elector as it appears elsewhere in the constitution and it's voters who are essentially unencumbered. <laughs> and so when you think about presidential electors under the original constitution, you, you would imagine that the term sort of operates the same way. And when states can control the manner or direct the manner of appointing electors, um, that doesn't include the power to control their judgment. Um, but there does seem to be something when the 12th Amendment is enacted, you know, the, the term elector, is it different at that point in time? Is it materially different? There's a materially different expectation then about how electors are going to operate. They're going to be party loyalists. In fact, we needed to do this because party loyalists were pairing up presidents and vice presidents. So we have this sort of mechanism to be able to do that. Um, and so then does this, does this 12th Amendment, which uses that same word elector, yet in a very different context with a very different understanding, then sort of include an additional state power, not amended in Article 2, right, um, to direct the manner of appointing electors, and electors now look different, right? They, 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 they look like they have a different kind of expectation and state power might actually change somewhat as a result of that. But, but, but very early on, they thought about as part of amending the Electoral College, getting rid of the human beings, right? I mean, even James Madison thought about, can't we make this a mechanical, mathematical of process whereby the states vote for president they're given their numerical number of electoral votes, but there's no human being that's an intermediary. That amendment was never adopted, uh, neither at the time of the 12th Amendment or since then, despite being proposed a zillion times. And I think also 
I think people forget because you know the, we don't need to spend a lot of time usually in the history of the Twelfth Amendment. They they crafted the amendment very narrowly because the Jeffersonian party only had the bare number of seats in both the Senate and the House to reach two thirds in in the Senate and the House. That supermajority necessary to send a constitutional amendment. So they were very. A lot of other proposals were put on the table, and they said, "Let's just do the one thing that we want to do." to make sure that we don't have the election of 1800 again, that train wreck, and that going forward, the party in control at the state level can assert its will by, you know, electing all of the electors for their candidate, if they, that's what they want to do, and then that'll translate into majority rule at, at the 12th Amendment federal level. So they got that barely passed, squeaked by in time for 1804, Jefferson's re-election, and they left in place these other elements because they didn't want to lose a single vote. So they knew full well that they were leaving in place human beings as electors. They expected that it wouldn't be a problem because of party loyalty under the new system, but they didn't take away the humanness. So I wonder if the plaintiffs pressed that point as much as they they might have. There isn't, isn't intrinsic to being a human being that you have a certain amount of volition? And isn't what Colorado and the state of Washington trying to do here is completely eliminate the human being quality of, of the Electoral College? And that's sort of the one feature that you can't take away. You actually took the opposite view based off of your book, though. <laughs> Oddly <laughs> enough, I was thinking because your book points out the fact that the 12th Amendment was designed in part because of uh, partisan affiliation, right? The Jeffersonians expected that the state legislatures at the time, they had an, enough c- control of enough states to secure Jefferson's election in, in 1804 that they didn't really have to tinker with um, that particular aspect of the Electoral College, right? And so um, because of that, this idea of Colorado and Washington having laws that um, say that electors have to vote in accordance with the popular vote makes sense to me, given partisan affiliation and political parties. And so I actually took a a bit of a different view um, because it seems to me that the 12th Amendment expressly contemplates parties. Um, And so, you know, the volition argument, it's like I get it. um, But another reason why I'm torn is it goes back to uh, Derek's point about elector meaning an elector, right, across constitutional provisions. I don't necessarily think that it does. Um, I'm not 100 percent. But so what I'm thinking is that when you think about. So let me explain my influence. My influence is that legislature doesn't necessarily mean legislature. Right. We know that from from the Supreme Court's jurisprudence on independent redistricting commissions. Right. And so it doesn't. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Um, But elector doesn't. Let me let me give you another reason, Derek, why elector might not mean elector. Um, So I am struck by the fact that presidential electors and electors, when we refer to voters, they perform different functions. And this is one thing that came out in the lower courts, right, that these electors are performing, the presidential electors are performing a federal function that is distinct and different from what regular electors do, what voters do. And not only are presidential electors performing a federal function, they're still electors in a traditional sense, right? So they still have their right to vote. They still have their way of expressing their preference for a particular candidate. Um, It's just that when they're performing this federal function, they're doing something that is distinctly different from what regular electors do. And then, too, it just goes back to this core question of who do the electors represent, which I think distinguishes them from how we traditionally conceive of when someone casts a ballot. Yeah, yeah. I think one, one, 
riddle here is that there is this, I, I don't want to say it's, I shouldn't say 10th Amendment uh, issue, but there is this sort of notion that states can regulate a lot of things surrounding presidential electors in sort of ways that would never be appropriate for members of Congress or for members of the public who are electors casting elections, uh, you know, casting votes in an election, right? So if you don't show up, there's a vacancy and you get to replace somebody there, right? And that's, that's a weird thing, right? You don't think if you don't show up on election day, uh, somebody gets to take your place <laughs> on election day in, in a typical election, right? Um, the notion that if you don't show up, you can be fined. Uh, that these are these are statutes from the founding. That's that's another kind of weird thing, right? You have some responsibility, and failure to do so means you're going to be fined if you fail to show up. So, um, you know, everyone acknowledges that you know if you don't show up, you can be replaced. But there's some of this sort of residual power, right? You, you've chosen your you've been chosen as an elector. You kind of have unfettered discretion to do whatever you want. Um, if you fail to show up, you can you can be thrown out. Uh, so I think, I think one of the tensions the court has had is trying to figure out what are these things that states can and can't do. And I, I, I feel like that it wasn't always the cleanest at oral argument articulating what that power looked like. I think there, there were attempts at times to say, well, once the, the, the elector sits down and casts a vote, starts writing out you know, the, the name of a candidate, then essentially nothing can be done to remove that person from office. And that would be I think a cleaner, more persuasive uh, rule, but there were also, you know, at oral argument, it got bogged down a little bit. And well, if you were bribed before the election, but not convicted, uh, and then could you vote? Could you be removed from office prior to that? There, there seemed to be a lot of a lot of disputes about how far that power extended prior to casting the vote. I think that 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 also concerned some of the justices. So based on that, do you think that the uh, finding the elector is a um, less problematic <laughs> issue than removal? Oof. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's still a penalty, right? I mean, you'd say well, if it were a penny, you know, it would still be some kind of uh, but Congress burden counts placed upon with them. With a fine, Congress actually counts the person's vote, right? Yes. They make the decision. Yes. yes. Well, and I, and I think... If Congress can, if Congress counts the vote of Celeste Landry, who replaced Michael Baca, um, surely a state can do the lesser penalty of fining. Well, that's my argument, but maybe not everyone agrees with that, right? Um, I, I, I think, I think there's still, it's a challenge to say that if, if um, uh, the kind of sanction is the thing that's really going to matter. It, it might be the case that if you're able to vote and they can execute you afterwards, right? <laughs> that doesn't seem like the kind of thing the state gets to do. Um, so in my view, I, I do think these cases do rise and fall together, at least on, on the principle of, uh, whether or not you have the discretion to cast the vote, however you want, sort of unencumbered by either removal from office or fine. So Pranita, I want to go back if I, if we can, to the point that you made about utilizing the book that I wrote to support the states here, because I do think that is a possible argument to say if the philosophy of the 12th Amendment is majority rule in a two-party competition, then why not let the states say we want to foster that by having electors be faithful to their party and not deviate from that party loyalty? And you could say that um, for the court to kind of intervene and strike down that state statute that is in the spirit of the 12th Amendment would be pretty aggressive, you know, judicial review. It's not like, you know, the court is reading something into the 
constitution that's extra, they, they would be kind of stopping the state from trying to make, to fulfill the constitutional vision. Um, the only problem, I mean, I have, a, again, a problem, two problems with that. One is just purely, you know, exactly what latitude does a court have if the original constitution itself was definitely to the contrary. And the 12th Amendment, even if its philosophy was different, didn't take away a power that was part of the original constitution. But putting aside that technical point, it's here is where I think one has to be careful about when, what one says is fidelity to the vision. Because imagine in Colorado forcing elector to be faithful when it's not a majority win, but one of my dreaded plurality wins because you've got that third party on the ballot that takes some votes. Then you're forcing the elector to be faithful to that party. But if the state is claiming in that context that they're fulfilling the vision of the 12th Amendment, I'm saying, no, 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 no. They're actually um, wrong about what that vision is. And one way to test the theme on this, and I'd be curious as to what both of you think. Let's go back to 2000, uh, Florida. You know, the main candidates are George W. Bush and Al Gore, but there's that guy, Ralph Nader. Suppose, and this is all hypothetical, obviously, but suppose um, a Bush elector, after all of that litigation of Bush versus Gore and blah, 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 at when the, t the time came to vote, actually said, you know what? I'm actually going to vote for Gore, not Bush. And it has nothing to do with hanging chads, but it has to do with the fact that I think Ralph Nader was a spoiler and that Gore would have won a majority of the popular vote if it had just been two-party competition. So I'm going to repudiate my party loyalty to the Republicans and George Bush and honor what I think is the true majority sentiment of the people of Florida. Now, that's where I actually think in that scenario, if it had been occurred, the faithless elector there would have actually been truer to the Jeffersonian spirit of the 12th Amendment than any state statute that purported to bind that elector, because binding that elector in that context would have been binding the elector to a minority victory. George Bush never got a majority in Florida. And so, um, so, you know, figuring out what fidelity to the Constitution here is really complicated, I think. And, and my hope for this case, whatever way it comes out, is that we, precisely because we look to the court to kind of understand ourselves as a country and understand our Constitution, that maybe if we pay some attention to the history and to the theory of the case, that we'll learn something about our system, warts and all, that we don't really fully understand about our system at the moment. I don't know, Ned. That's hard. Um, but I, I think I'm resisting the hypothetical, and I'm trying not to do that. <laughs> I, I just don't feel like his reasons matter. The elector's reasons for being faithless don't really matter. For me, the question is whether or not the state can bind him and whether or not the state's reasons are consistent with the spirit and, and of the 12th Amendment. And I, I think spirit and purpose is important here because for me, the text isn't entirely clear. Because if you think about it, one of the arguments for this idea that um, all the state can do is appoint the electors and then after that, the state's role ends. It's, it's basically we're inferring that from the absence of text. 
<laughs> right? It's the, the 12th Amendment just doesn't really say anything about the states after that. Um, and so for me, this, the, the text isn't necessarily dispositive of this issue. And I'm less comfortable with trying to infer um, whether or not essentially who's acting more faithful to the 12th Amendment when the focus really is on, like we have, we impose on the state an obligation to be rational, right? And so we impose all of these obligations on the state in terms of how they act with respect to their citizenry and in the context of elections and everything. And so to me, that just seems like a more comfortable analysis than trying to probe someone's reasons for um, being faithless. Because arguably, um, one might say, one could agree with the electors in Colorado and Washington about their rationale for departing, but ultimately, should it even matter? Yeah, so I wonder how each of you feel. So um, Professor Larry Lessig of Harvard, who argued one of these cases and you know was actively involved, also had some litigation that's in the lower courts on the so-called winner-take-all provision. And he's trying to, now here, he's uh, trying to get the courts to step in to invalidate state laws, um, which I guess is what he's trying to do in uh, in both contexts. So in that sense, he's consistent. He's it, it's a um, but the state laws that he's trying to invalidate there are these laws that arose in the 19th century that give a state's elect all of a state's electoral votes um, winner take all, again, even if it's a plurality win, not a majority win. Again, I think that litigation is consistent with the spirit of the 12th Amendment, but it goes beyond what the text of the amendment says. The text doesn't actually um, constrain the states in quite the way that he's asking the courts to do. So I'm, I'd be curious as to what both of you think about the nature of using litigation to kind of improve the Constitution uh, beyond what it actually says. Yeah, well, I think, especially with a case like, like the cases that he's bringing, um, everyone would agree that state legislatures have the power to divide their state up into districts, to appoint electors on a proportional basis, to have a ranked choice voting system and appoint to the top two vote getters, right? So um, in, in a way, it really, you know, with, with faith as electors, it's a question, well, either states have the power or if they don't, we have to amend the Constitution, <laughs> which is a pretty pretty heavy lift, as opposed to essentially something left to the discretion of the states to decide how they want to go about the appointment of their electors and sort of pressing them into a particular mode or at least away from a mode. So I think that's one of the sort of procedural setup challenges um, to thinking about how that's happening uh, at the state level. Obviously, all the states migrated to winner take all when they saw how much political leverage they could exert over states, right? I mean, California and Ohio being two preeminent examples of uh, a 55 nothing or, you know, being a swing state closely divided bucket of votes. Uh, everybody wants to do that sort of at the state level. And maybe that undermines what we expect or desire out of the electoral college. But um, it, it, it's, it's, it's hard looking at the text of the Constitution and hard looking at how states have behaved historically um, to suggest it should be otherwise. But I know that's that's my own take. I guess my take would be um, it depends on how much has changed. <laughs> right. So um, I think we easily accept the idea of the court having room. 
um, in the context of pretty much every election except presidential elections. Then all of a sudden, the court is just really, really concerned about um, recognizing the the federal interest. Um, and I'm I, and I'm not saying that as a criticism of the court. It is an election that matters, right? But think about how we um, approach elections in other contexts, right? There's no um, explicit right to vote in a constitutional text. We infer that. Um, conflicts between time, place, and manner and voter qualifications, the court has not been entirely clear about how to navigate that divide. Um, so the court has been liberal in the past, and I'm small L liberal, <laughs> about sort of how it has approached voting questions because of the lack of clarity in the text. But the question is, does that carry over to the presidential election context, right? Does it, is that a situation in which we are willing to import um, sort of the Warren court right to vote treat it broadly, let's enfranchise everybody, do we import that into the presidential context? And I think to some extent, the answer to that has been yes, right? The um, Anderson verdict applies across elections. It applies to presidential elections, state and other federal elections. Um, to go back to Derek's point earlier, the fact that people don't know the electors. We have convinced the entire public that they are voting for, you know, in 2016, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, and they have no idea who these people are. And part of that has become is because the electors have less prominence now. And so I think, you know, if you look at the signs, uh, the presidential election context has become just as democratized as other as the context of other elections. And so I do think that that affects our calculus of whether or not the court should uh, feel have some room to amend the constitutional text. Or I guess it's not an amendment. I, I, the, t the text doesn't really pr provide a ton of clarity here to me. Um, but I do think that gives the court some room and, and maybe they should feel free to use that room liberally to some extent because they've done it in another context. It's not weird. Um, and, you know, this maybe the national interest would support that type of activism. But if they think they're going to avoid chaos, as Justice Kavanaugh said, they aren't necessarily going to be successful by uh, approving these state laws because only some states have them. Maybe even most do, but not all. And so, you know, a, a ruling this June that says uh, Washington and Colorado can stop their electors from being faithless doesn't completely eliminate chaos. It may reduce the risk of chaos compared to the alternative ruling, but we could still face in the fall a 270 to 268 split in the Electoral College. That's not a crazy outcome if you play with these calculators. And so that would mean just one or two electors going rogue could really make the difference. They wouldn't have to come from Washington or Colorado. They could come from one of those states that still doesn't have these laws. Um, and so the Supreme Court would have tried to protect the voter, and yet the Constitution still would have a kind of Achilles heel in it because these human beings are still human beings until we get the constitutional amendment. So we can we can tinker with the system, but we can't we can't make it secure without a constitutional amendment. I think that's an unfortunate reality here. Ned, I have some bad news. So here goes. There will be no Supreme Court decision between now and June that would allow you to sleep at night before November. <laughs> I know you're looking for it, friend, but it's not happening. Because whatever decision comes out, there will be seven or eight or 200 hypotheticals that come from it about <laughs> what, what alternatives are left open. 
Well, I hate to end on bad news, but you know we're probably trying to wrap up uh, um, our our episode. Derek, we should let you uh, have a final thought that you want to share with us as our guest today, which we've really enjoyed having you for. So, oh no, it's been a pleasure. I really enjoy talking about these issues with you all. You know, thinking about the nuances between Article Two and the Twelfth Amendment, or digging deep into the Jeffersonian history is <laughs> the kinds of wonkiness you don't always get. Uh, even in the election law community, it takes a special type, I think, to talk about some of these issues. So it's been a real pleasure and a, and a delight. So thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Derek. It has definitely been a great conversation. I may ignore that you just said we're weird. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> I love talking about this stuff and um, I'm a big fan of your work, which you know. So thank you so much for coming on the show with me and Nia today. Yeah, no, it's been great. And if I can just have one final thought, it's that I think we all share. Um, this case is important to think about because it puts on the table both democratic principles like Fernita you were talking about and the evolution of our country to try to improve democracy for the sake of the voters and the changes of in practices and yet we still got an old constitution that has provisions that aren't fully consistent with that and so there may have been some technical aspects to today's conversation but it does leave me at least with the impression that there are some really big themes that emerge so I want to thank you both for for letting us explore those themes. That's our episode for today. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Eric French at Ohio State and Larissa Puro at USC for their roles in producing this podcast. Fernita and I very much appreciate all the support we receive at both our home institutions to make this joint endeavor possible.